Would you now turn with me in your Bibles, first of all, to Deuteronomy chapter 4. I want to read the verses 15 through to the end of verse 32. chapter 4, beginning to read at verse 15. This is the word of God. Take careful heed to yourselves, for you saw no form when the Lord spoke to you at Horeb out of the midst of the fire, lest you act corruptly and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, or the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the air the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground or the likeness of any fish that is in the water beneath the earth. And take heed lest you lift your eyes to heaven. And when you see the sun, the moon, and the stars and all the hosts of heaven, you feel driven to worship them and serve them, which the Lord your God has given to all the peoples under the whole earth as a heritage. But the Lord has taken you and brought you out from the iron furnace out of Egypt to be his people an inheritance as you are this day. Furthermore, the Lord was angry with me for your sakes and swore that I would not cross over the Jordan and that I would not enter the good land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance, but I must die in this land. I must not cross over the Jordan and you shall cross over and possess the good land. Take heed to yourselves lest you forget the covenant of the Lord your God which he made with you and make for yourselves a carved image in the form of anything which the Lord your God has forbidden you. For the Lord your God is a consuming fire, a jealous God. And when you beget children and grandchildren and have grown old in the land and act corruptly and make a carved image in the form of anything and do evil in the sight of the Lord your God to provoke him to anger, I call upon heaven and earth to witness against you this day that you will soon utterly perish from the land which you cross over the Jordan to possess. You will not prolong your days in it, but will be utterly destroyed. And the Lord will scatter you among the people, and you will be left few in number among the nations where the Lord God will drive you. And there you will serve gods, the work of men's hands, wood and stone, which neither see nor hear nor eat nor smell. But from there you will seek the Lord your God, and you will find him if you seek him with all your heart and with all your soul. When you are in distress and all these things come upon you in the latter days, when you turn to the Lord your God and obey his voice, for the Lord your God is a merciful God, he will not forsake you nor destroy you, nor forget the covenant of your fathers which he has sworn to them. For ask now concerning the days that are past, which were before you, since the day that God created man on the earth, and ask from one end of heaven to the other whether any great thing like this has happened or anything like it has been heard thus far. Would you now turn also with me to Deuteronomy chapter 12. Deuteronomy chapter 12, and I want to read the verses 29 to the end of the chapter, 29 to 32. Deuteronomy 12, beginning to read at verse 29. We continue to hear the word of God. When the Lord your God cuts off from before you the nations which you go to dispossess, and you <coughs> displace them and dwell in their land, 
Take heed to yourselves that you are not ensnared to follow them after they are destroyed from before you, and that you do not inquire after their gods, saying, How did these nations serve their gods? I also will do likewise. You shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. For every abomination to the Lord which he hates they have done to their gods, for they burn even their sons and daughters in the fire to their gods. Whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it, nor take away from it. Then for our text, thus far the reading of God's word, and then for our text this afternoon, is found found in Lord's Day 35. Uh, You'll find that on page 890, Lord's Day 35, question and answer 96, 97, and 98. Page 890, Lord's Day 35. And here we read the following, and I remind this that the, this is your confession of faith as it is mine. And so, congregation, what is God's will for us in the second commandment? That we in no way make any image of God, nor worship him in any other way than he has commanded in, his, in God's word. May we then not make any image at all. God, God cannot and may not be visibly portrayed in any way. Although creatures may be portrayed, yet God forbids making or having such images in order to worship them or serve God through them. But may not images as books for the unlearned be permitted in the churches? No. We should not try to be wiser than God. He wants the Christian community instructed by the living preaching of his word and not by idols that cannot even talk. Thus far, the reading of God's holy word and the summary of that word as we find it in the creeds and confessions of the church. May God once again add his blessing to the hearing, the reading, and the preaching of his word for a second time this afternoon. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ gathered here in Bowmanville with me this afternoon. The first commandment you will remember from an earlier sermon in this series Hopefully you heard that last week, because I believe you had last week, you had Lord's Day 34, but the Lord's Day 34 dealt with the first commandment, and you remember taught us there that, that there was only one God who shares his glory with no one, and it taught us that we were to worship him and him alone. The second commandment now will instruct us how we are to worship him. You hear it already. You shall not make for yourselves a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in the heaven above, in the earth beneath, or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. You, says, you shall not. You then, meaning you, whoever you are personally. And of course, what is forbidden to us as individuals is certainly also forbidden, if not even more so, corporately. Oh, indeed, the law was given to Moses in the Old Testament church, but no less is the commandment for the New Testament church of Christ. She, too, the New Testament church, she, too, must know what manner of worship is pleasing to the Lord and what is not. She, too, must know how to worship that one true God. We will also, again, see in this second commandment the positive and the negative elements. The negative tells us what is forbidden, The positive teaches us what is commanded. And you will remember, I hope, that each of the Ten Commandments have that positive and that negative aspect. For instance, in the first commandment, the first commandment forbids us from having any other gods, and it commands us to serve only the one true God. 
And the same two elements are found in the, this commandment. The second commandment forbids the making of images in order to worship God. And it commands us to worship him only in the way in which he has commanded or instructed us. And so I want to administer God's word to you this afternoon under the theme, using as my theme, no graven images. And we want to see, first of all, what is forbidden in the second commandment. Then we want to see what is commanded in the second commandment. And then finally, we want to consider the two-part warning attached to this commandment. So no graven images, what is forbidden, what is commanded, and the warning attached to the commandment. People of God, when I served the church in Florida, I came to hear of a little town called Pinecroft. And we went to see if what I had heard about that town was true. And indeed it was. Apparently that little town had become a, a, a haven, a vacation spot for old order Amish Mennonites. And the town was teeming with men in straw hats and long beards and women in long skirts and bonnets. And we were fascinated. And we parked the car and we walked through the town. And at a certain point, Corey and I stumbled upon a park where we saw perhaps three or four hundred Amish people, Amish men and women, playing shuffleboard. I was mesmerized by the scene, and I wanted to take some pictures. But as I took up my camera, one of the men sauntered up to me and informed me that many Amish people would be seriously offended if I took their picture. I understood. As a child, I can remember hearing my parents having that discussion among their friends. I understand their arguments. They, along with these Amish men and women, used the second commandment as a basis for their position. But what sincere but sincerely wrong Christians, my parents and these Amish among them, had what had escaped them was that the second commandment does not forbid images of any and every kind. That was their error. They were under the impression that God forbade the making of any image. But thankfully, the explanation here in the catechism sets our minds at ease. The answer to the second question in this Lord's Day asks, may we then not make any images at all? And the answer that comes to us reads that creatures may be portrayed, meaning then that creatures, including human beings, may certainly be portrayed. We may take pictures of them. But making images of creatures is forbidden if our intention thereby is to worship them or even to serve God through them. In other words, not all imagery is idolatry. To be able to photograph images or to have talents in painting portraits, for instance, is a great gift and a talent given by God, and as such they may be used and appreciated by his people. That's not what the second commandment forbids. So then precisely, what does the commandment forbid? Well, first of all, the second commandment teaches us that it is forbidden to image or to portray the invisible God by any visible means. How could you do that? You don't know what he looks like. How could we possibly, any image that we then make of him would be an idol, would it not? And so it is forbidden to image or to portray the invisible God with any visible means. And this of course means, this of course was the sin of the Israelites at the, the base of Mount Horeb. You remember the story, you remember the story of the golden calf. This calf, in the strictest sense, was not an idol. 
neither the Israelites nor Aaron saw it as such, nor had they intended it as such when they created it. It was not their intent to deny God. It was not their intent to replace God with an idol. No, they created this image in order to, in their minds, better serve God. And I believe it to be legitimate to observe that their motives and their intentions were good, but the thing that they had done was not good, for we know that the thing they had done displeased the Lord, and you know the rest of the story. The same sin was later repeated by Jeroboam. You'll remember that Jeroboam, driven by political motives, constructed two golden calves. One was to be used in worship in the northern kingdom, in Dan. The other one was to be situated in the southern region, in Bethel. And again, his motive was not to abandon the worship, of the true worship of God, or the worship of the true God, no. His desire was to provide places of worship which would facilitate the political conditions of the day. However, although his motives and his intentions were perhaps good, it again displeased the Lord to such an extent that because of this violation of God's specific instructions for worship, Israel ultimately was led into captivity. And as consequence, as, as a consequence, they were driven into captivity. Imagine that with me for a moment. Let that bit of information sink deeply into your minds, into your hearts, your very souls for just a moment. Understand this well. Jeroboam sought to better facilitate worship of God in Israel. His motives were good. His desire was commendable. And yet God was so unhappy with the violation of his instruction concerning worship that the entire nation went into captivity. Serious business, then, people of God. Serious business, this business of worship. As individual believers and collectively as a church, we do well to pay close attention this afternoon. The Spirit has so much to teach us here, especially in the ecclesiastical climate in which we live today. Worship in most contemporary churches today is, if you will, consumer-driven. What I mean is that many churches today, they design worship services in accordance with the desire of the consumer. In other words, what the members want and whatever seems to be work best, they are, they are, we are instructed by their worship leaders to be creative and innovative to comply with the whims of the congregation. I recently read of, a, of, a, of an advertisement in a church paper, a reformed church paper advertising for a minister who could be creative and innovative in worship to provide for the needs, perceived needs, of the members of the flock. I shuddered. My dear people of God, we need to have a good understanding of this business of worship because, because to trifle with God's holy ordinances concerning worship can have the most serious of consequences as Jeroboam and all Israel with him discovered. And already you are beginning, I hope you are beginning to sense that very serious things are going to be set before us for our consideration this afternoon. And already I hope we're beginning to understand that the things we do in worship, in a worship service, even when motivated with the best of intentions to better serve the Lord, when not prescribed in Scripture, are forbidden. In other words, God is not pleased when we begin to introduce things into our worship services 
which are not commanded in Scripture. And for that reason, we do not have choirs or bands or rock music or skits or children's sermons, special music, and all the rest in our worship services here in Bowmanville. God is honored. God is honored in worship only when all that we do in worship is prescribed for us in the Bible. There is no biblical warrant for any of those things I just mentioned in Scripture, and therefore it is forbidden to introduce them. It is forbidden to introduce them into a worship service according to the second commandment. This commandment forbids the making of or taking of any image whereby we wish to portray God. But further, this commandment also forbids the making of any image whereby we wish to worship or to serve God. Undoubtedly, much of this confession was directed and specifically uh, uh, intended to refute the errors of the image worship in the Church of Rome in in the day, but the battle over images in the church raged, especially in the 7th and the 8th century, and that that history is interesting. I stumbled upon some of that as I prepared for this sermon, but at that time, the church was divided on the issue of the images, and much of the tension came about by the efforts of primarily two women, one, the widow of Leo IV, and the other, the widow of Kaiser Theophilus. Both of these state leaders, Leo and Theophilus, had, prior to their death, transferred their authority over the church and state to their wives. And these two women, using their new authority in the state churches, commanded that images were to be part of the church service. But images in the churches find no warrant in Scripture. To the contrary, they are expressly forbidden. And Rome, being well aware of the commandments in Scripture, justified the ungodly practice by claiming to distinguish between honoring the saints and worshiping God through these images. They would argue that they are not worshiping God through these idols. No, according to them, they simply honor the saints who are represented by these images. One wonders, though, in that context, how they explain the images of Christ found in all of their churches, in their homes, and even around their necks. However, even that distinction, that cannot be supported by the scripture, and the idolatry in the Roman churches continues to this day. But the catechism goes on to ask the question, may images then not be used in the churches as teaching aids for the unlearned? And at first glance, the using of images to teach the unlearned would seem to have some merit. To our human minds, that makes good sense. Can we not use pictures and such to teach the gospel? We would think, of of course we can. We do a similar thing in instructing our little children. A picture is worth a thousand words, and so in order to teach them certain things, we use pictures or images to help them to learn and to understand. Would it then not make sense then? Would it not make sense then? Or to ask it differently, would it then not be permissible to use images to teach the truths of God to the undiscerning mind? Is that forbidden? We listen again to the instruction here in the Catechism. May then not even images be used to teach the unlearned? That's the question. And the answer, no. No, they may not be used. We may not, it says, we may not be wiser than God, who wants his people instructed 
through the living preaching of his word and not by dumb images that cannot even talk. We hear it again. We may not try to be wiser than God. Although the use of images may make sense to us, God has forbidden it. He has specifically commanded how he is, how we are to be instructed in the gospel. God has determined the method and the means for bringing us to the knowledge of the things necessary for salvation. And he has determined that to be the living preaching of his word. <clears throat> Mighty people of God, follow this with me now. To win converts for the faith was the specific command of Christ. Jesus clearly mandates that it is the task of the church to gather the sheep out of the world and into the fold. We read in Mark 16 the words of Christ to his disciples, go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. We hear it already. Go into the world and do what? Preach the gospel. Those who hear will be saved. In other words, then the catechism is simply listen to the Bible and gives us the summary of what is taught and declares, faith does not. Hear me well. Faith does not and faith cannot come through beholding of dumb images that cannot even talk, but faith comes through the living preaching of the word of God. That was and is the command of Christ. Congregation, nowhere in the Old Testament nor in the early New Testament church do we find any reference to images being used to teach the gospel. We think of all the heroes of the faith who were instrumental in teaching and leading God's people, and nowhere do we read that they used any means other than the preaching and the teaching, nor do we read that they themselves were imaged or honored after their death by the churches that followed them. Is there any biblical warrant then to use images for teaching? No. May they then be used by the churches for instructing the unlearned people? No. May we try to be wiser than God? No. God has made it known who we are to worship, him and him alone. And he has gone on to specify how that is to be done only in the way in which he has commanded it. And we observe once again that although God himself is not bound by his revealed commandments, the church is bound by the means prescribed. And the church is to hold herself and confine herself to the God-ordained means of creating faith in the hearts of his elect. And so having seen what is forbidden in our worship of God, we also need to go on to understand what is commanded in our worship of him. And we hear the words of Christ to the Samaritan woman in John 4. God is a spirit and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. We hear it. Worship must be done in spirit and in truth. And those two elements can never be separated. You know the story there of John 4. Jesus is sitting at the well of Samaria and a woman comes to the well and Jesus enters into a dialogue with her. He chastises her for her immoral conduct. And she attempts to throw him off by asking a question about the proper place of worship. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain and yet you Jews say it is Jerusalem. Which is it now? Jesus here begins to lay down a fundamental principle for New Testament worship. 
he gives to her and to us to know that it is no longer matters in that sense where we worship, but the important matter is the attitude of the heart and mind in the obedience to God's truth regarding the object of worship and the method of worship. It is not where, but how we worship that is all important. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. In other words, the object and the method of worship is the all-important element. The object of worship must be God, not idols or images. And then the method of worship must be in truth or in accordance with the way that God has commanded, and in no other way. The hour is coming, says Christ. Jesus marks here the coming of the new dispensation, when all of the ceremonial laws will pass away with the coming of the all-sufficient sacrifice of Christ. The religion of the old dispensation, the Old Testament, with the emphasis on times and places, seasons and ceremonies, will disappear, and that worship must be in spirit and in truth. In the Old Testament, God made clear where he was to worship, but now, after Pentecost, it was no longer where, but how, in spirit and in truth. And my dear people, God, these words have have significant import. They have also been greatly misinterpreted by many scholars. And we need to guard against two errors here. We need to carefully capture both elements of what is given us here. On the one hand, we have those who place all the emphasis on the necessity of true spiritual worship. But we also see those who place an undue emphasis on the aspect of true worship. And both elements must be vigorously promoted and maintained. But what must be captured by us here is that Christ teaches that any worship, any worship worthy of the name worship, must be a rendering of such homage to God that the entire heart enters into worship. That's in spirit. And in doing it in full harmony with the truth of God as revealed in, in scripture. In other words, it must be spiritual worship from the heart as opposed to simply physical or external from the mind only. You see, it must be, worship must be more than simply sitting in a pew and going through the motions. It must be, it must be more than simply attending a worship service and, 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 and tolerating it for an hour or so. The worship must be spiritual worship, but it must be from the heart. It must be more than simply going through the motions. It must also be directed to and be in harmony with the truth of God's ordinances for true worship. People of God, gird up the loins of your mind with me here. For these words of our Lord constitute a warning against two common and equally serious perversions of worship. When Jesus says we are to worship in spirit and in truth, he warned against a formal, outward, ritualistic, and legalistic, pharisaistic worship, which flows not from a heart or a spirit of gratitude for redemption in Christ. Jesus warns against a simple following of prescribed rules with nothing more. Jesus warns against going to church simply because of 
tradition or custom. Jesus warns against worship services where the heart is not engaged or affected. But he also warns against worshiping in a manner not according to God's truth. Or if you will, he admonishes us against any self-styled worship. Both elements must be maintained. Worship must be in spirit and in truth. And that has become a very contentious issue since it takes a truly, truly born-again and discerning heart to accept the things of the Spirit. Follow this with me. The second commandment lays down what has been called the regulative principle of worship. Regulative in the sense that our worship is to be regulated or determined by the scriptures. When we say that, when we say that, what that means is that since the second commandment forbids us from worshiping God in any other manner than he has commanded, the scripture then must be consulted to determine what God has commanded with regards to our worship of him. And our forefathers have done that. They have searched the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, and they've taken careful note of what God requires when he calls his people to worship. And they put that all together in a nice, neat package, and we call it an order of worship. We hear the words of the catechism again. We are informed that we are to no wise represent God by images, nor worship him in any other way that he has commanded in his word. We are to serve and to worship him only in the way in which he has commanded. And that now was the basis for the regulative principle of worship as embraced by all truly reformed Christianity. The view held by all other non-reformed Christian traditions was that any mode of method or method of worship was acceptable unless God expressly forbade it. But our fathers, based on their understanding of the second commandment, held that no worship was acceptable unless God specifically commanded it and that God was worshipped only in the way in which he had positively commanded it in the Bible. The second commandment then guards us from implementing any self-styled or innovative motives of worship. All true worship must be found as commands in scripture and any element introduced in worship must have biblical warrant. Congregation, if you will allow me just a moment for an interjection here. But recently I had opportunity to preach in one of our churches where at Christmas time, the Christmas season, Advent season, they had the Advent wreath in their church. It bothered me deeply. They found nothing wrong with that because after all, we're just lighting some candles, we're reading some scripture, and we are and, and, and we're singing some songs. And how helpful that was to appreciate the Christmas season until I sat down with some of the men in the consistory room and explained to them, do you understand what you are doing here? Because you light these candles and you sing these songs and you have a little litany that goes with each candle. But when you come to the white candle in the center, which is the Christ child, then the litany that goes with it says, we light this candle to remind us of the coming of Christ. Do you understand that we left the Christian Reformed Church over that precise principle? Because what you're saying when you do that is that the scripture and the Holy Spirit is insufficient. We need more than the Bible. And so we light a candle to remind, no, the Holy Spirit reminds us 
and he reminds us in the Bible of the coming of the Christ, not by images or by lighting candles. We, have become, we need to become much more discerning in the things that we do. People God, those of us, those of you who are older, will remember that not too many years ago that if you walked into a church anywhere in the world, a church which adhered to and promoted the historic Reformed faith, you knew you were in such a church simply on the basis or of the method of the order of worship. This method of worship was the collective norm for all of the Reformed churches based not on tradition but on Deuteronomy 12 verse 32 where we hear God expressly forbidding or adding to or taking away from his own ordained means of worship. We hear God saying in the express context of worship, whatever I command you, be careful to observe it. You shall not add to it nor take it away. And as I said, our father sat down and they searched the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation and they found all the things that were commanded about worship for God's people when they gathered together and they put that into that package which we call an order of worship. Oh, some may have six songs, some may have five, some may have the offering before the sermon, others have it afterwards, but the package is the same because that's how God has commanded us as a church to worship him and that's why it didn't matter where you were whether you were in Alaska or in California in the Netherlands or in Bowman no matter where you were the moment you began to worship in one of those churches you knew you're in a reformed worship by the order of worship walk with me for a moment God says whatever I command of you in worship do not add to it nor take away from it. We would think that language is clear. But apparently many throughout history, also within the church, have not understood. We read of Nadab and Abihu in Leviticus 10, who each took his censer and put fire in it and offered before the Lord that which was not commanded. And so instead fire went out from the Lord and devoured them, and they both died before the Lord. We read of Uzzah, in 1 Chronicles 13, you know that story. We tell it to our children. The ark was to be returned to its proper place. A new ark, new wood was, 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 was built. And, 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 and the ox cart carrying the ark stumbled. And the ark threatened to fall onto the ground. And Uzzah, wanting to show respect for the ark... Uzzah wanting to prevent that ark from falling into the dirt with all of the best intentions. He struck out his hand to steady the ark to prevent it from falling. But that was forbidden by God and he died before the Lord. We read of Saul's unlawful sacrifice in 1 Samuel 13. We read of King Uzziah in 2 Chronicles 26 who decided he would enter the temple to offer incense but because he had not been commanded this of God, he became a leper. We heard of the charges against Jeroboam in 1 Kings who, who dared to change the date of the feasts of the tabernacles and the prescribed places of worship. And all of these incidents of violations of, to God, to God's prescribed means, had tragic consequences, not only for the individuals involved, but for the entire nation, or if you will, the entire congregation God prescribes and God determines what is acceptable and he accepts as worship only that which he has determined and has made known among the nations what pleases him in worship in his word
Then finally, a two-part warning attached to this commandment, a threat and a promise. The threat reads that God will visit the iniquity of the fathers upon the third and fourth generations of those who hate him, and the promise reads, but he will show mercy to thousands to those who love him and keep his commandments. A greater explanation of what is given us there will need to wait for a later sermon in this series. However, we do need to note here that God is a jealous God who brooks no compromise. He will not share his glory with anyone. And the threat to, 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 to visiting the succeeding generations of those who fail to keep his commandments has come to expression repeatedly throughout the biblical record. Time and time again, we saw that where the fathers violated God's norms without repentance and return, they and their children, sometimes for generations, suffered the consequences. We still see the same today. See once in this connection the consequences of churches that have begun to abandon God's norms. All around us we see churches, churches that were once faithful, bulwarks of the Christian faith, and they have begun to trifle with the holy ordinances of God, perhaps with all of the best intentions. If we will only spice and spice things up a little bit, if we will only jazz it up a little bit, we will draw more young people. We'll be able to keep with all of the best of intentions. But look, look at the abandoned buildings and see some of the buildings where the weeds are growing up in the parking lot for lack of use. Once they were faithful, bulwark churches, bulwarks home of the, of the truth of God, and yet they're gone because they've begun to trifle with the things of God. In just a few short years, less than one generation, the churches are almost completely empty, and the handful of churches that still remain, the handful of churches that still gather God's people together for worship on Sunday, most of them are nothing other than hotbeds of social gospel and, 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 and the, the people receive, receive stones for bread because the legacy that has been left them by their unfaithful fathers. But, but, but we hear God promises also to demonstrate mercy to those who love him and keep his commandments. And that mercy extends not only to, to the faithful, but also to the sons and daughters who follow the faithful. People got to capture this with me, especially those of us as fathers, those of us as parents. It is as if, it is, it is as if God is here asking of you and of me, do you love your children? And if your answer is yes, then God says, then love also me and keep my commandments and see then once how will I will bless not only you but also your children and your children's children, your grandchildren. But at the same time, if you begin to wonder, if you begin to ignore me, then see how it will affect also your children, sometimes for generations. People, we need to pay close attention to what we've learned here this afternoon. We all know what the secular spirit of pragmatism does to the church. To be pragmatic simply means to do what we think works best. And God honors worship only insofar as it is commanded in Scripture. And any and all other elements introduced in our worship services, meaning anything done in worship, 
which is not specifically commanded in the Bible is not pleasing to him, but is in fact an abomination to him, no matter how effectively we think it works, and regardless of how beneficial we may deem it to be for us or for our children or for our efforts at outreach and evangelism. According to the Bible, we may worship him only in the manner in which he has commanded, which he himself has commanded in scripture. Anything less than that or anything more than that constitutes disobedience and unfaithfulness on our part. No matter how sincere our motives, it's a direct violation of the second commandment. We need to be clear on that. Then finally, we remind ourselves that even our worship of him is done imperfectly. And even our best offerings are still polluted with the stains of our sin. And often we can only hang our heads in shame when we take careful note of the deficiencies in our personal and corporate worship. And yet, and yet, and yet, we see, we see the cross. And we see there the blood spilled. We see the ascended Christ sitting at the right hand of the Father, interceding for us and perfecting, cleansing with his precious blood, even our sin-stained and imperfect worship. The command is to worship him as he has commanded. But the promise is that all of the defects and deficiencies will be sanctified in Christ. And when our worship bursts forth from hearts and spirits filled with gratitude, and when done in accordance with the truth of God's word, sanctified by Christ, it rises up as a sweet-smelling savor before the throne of God. And then God is glorified and his people edified and the congregation can expect God's blessing.